Hello and welcome to our second season of Media Industry Conversations. I'm your host, Kyle Rather. This program is part of an ongoing speaker series in the Department of Radio, Television, and Film at the University of Texas at Austin. Students hear from industry professionals who talk about their experiences, knowledge, and thoughts on the changing media landscape. This week's guest is Lev Spiro. He's an award-winning director who's worked on some of the most critically acclaimed television shows today, including Modern Family, Orange is the New Black, Arrested Development, and many others. Spyro earned a master's degree in film at UT before moving to Hollywood to try to become a director. He worked a number of jobs there, including as a Universal Studios tour guide, a boom operator, and then becoming a director for low-budget film legend Roger Corman. Spyro recounts these stories and many others and discusses the way television and film are changing. He spoke on October 10, 2016 on the UT campus, and the conversation was hosted by Elisa Perrin. I'm Elisa Perrin, and I'm thrilled to welcome Lev Spiro, a TV director whose credits are impressive, and I'll get into in just a, so- a second, and we'll get a, a sampling of some of his uh, work as well. Uh, but before doing that, I want to make a few thank yous. Uh, first of all, to my colleague Cindy McCreary for helping to coordinate this, to our grad students Laura Felshow, Tim Piper, and Kyle Rather for their assistance, and also to the RTF faculty and staff, in particular our chair Paul Steckler, uh, as well as Alana Wakeman in marketing and publicity for the department. And also thank you to the Moody College of Communication, in particular Dean Bernhardt and Associate Dean Mike Wilson. And if you want to keep up with what upcoming events we have, then uh, I have to sound like I'm a promoter here. Uh, check out our Twitter feed, RTFMIC, and the website for podcasts of all of our previous guests as well. Okay, so a little bit about Mr. Spyro. Uh, he's directed more than 150 episodes for television, uh, including pilots and features for television. I'm sure many of us are fans of a lot of the shows that he's directed, including Orange is the New Black, Arrested Development, Weeds, Modern Family, and many others I suspect we'll hear about and see screened imminently. His work has been acknowledged in a number of places, including by the DGA, GLAAD, and the Emmys. And he, we're going to talk a bit today about how he's directed in a variety of genres, for a variety of outlets, and different audience demographics. Uh, among the items that we'll be discussing today, uh, and we'll have some time for Q&A at the end, so definitely save some questions, are his career trajectory, his roles and responsibilities as a director for television, uh, his views on the current state of television, and advice for all of you who might want to have a career in television and directing for television, get some recommendations, that sort of thing. So please join me in welcoming Mr. Spiro. Before we dig in, uh, he has a few clips for you to check out. Uh, The first one is a Modern Family segment that you've directed, correct? Yes. And next up, just, I guess I'll set him up all now. Uh, Drama reel of some of the shows he's directed that are hour-long dramas. Yeah, the drama reel was cut uh, very specifically to try to get on a certain show, but yeah, that's about a year and a half old now, but uh, it's an interesting piece. Yeah, definitely. And then uh, a selection from Beverly Hills Chihuahua 3, correct? Which was a TV movie. or Correct. Uh, uh, DVD. DVD movie. 
It, it seems weird to say DVD these days. I know. Um, okay, so let's go ahead and take a look at that. So uh, maybe you can tell us a little bit about, uh, is, is that Modern Family clip a particular segment that you're, or episode that you're? I cut that, I, uh, gosh, uh, I think two years ago, I was uh, going to cut a new reel, uh, and you, know, you have to keep your, your samples fresh. And my agent said, well, nobody really shows reels anymore. Everyone has websites. And I was like, uh -huh, okay. So I had to make a website. And with uh, there's a bunch of scenes uh, from various things that I've done on there. And there's comedy scenes and drama scenes. That was one of the things that I cut from Modern Family. Uh, yeah, it's, it's for the website. Gotcha, gotcha. <laughs> it's hard to keep up with this stuff. I mean, I, I do now... Uh, it, uh, I'm engaging a publicist to publicize a particular uh, project. And they said, uh, well, it's not so much about websites now. It's really through social media. It's like, well, I, it's difficult to keep up with marketing yourself. Right. You need to have someone instruct you what to do at each stage, I guess. Uh, well, I'm going to just back us up a little bit to help people get a sense of uh, where you started from. And uh, back to your days at UT, first off. And uh, how did you begin to think about directing for TV and uh, where did, how did UT fit in this picture? Yeah, uh, very good question. So it's funny, I didn't go to LA to be a TV director per se, I went to be a director. And I'll tell you about how I got into television, which has been you know, a, a fantastic living and I've really enjoyed myself for the last 20 years. Um, I came to, I'll back up a little bit more, I was actually studying political science at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. I come from a very overachieving family of psychiatrists and political scientists, and going into the entertainment industry was not really something that was in the range of options, shall we say. Um, and uh, I had gone through three years of studying poli-sci in Madison, and got it. I remember getting a note from the bursar's office saying, hey, you're, you're seven credits shy of graduating, and I kind of freaked out and went, what? I, what? I don't know what to, I didn't want to go to law school. I didn't want to go into politics. Um, I added a double major. I, I started studying communication science, uh, communication arts, they call it there. Um, and the last semester I was in school, I took my first uh, film course, a Super 8 course, and that's when the lightning bolt hit. So I did not grow up, I wasn't Spielberg at the age of 14 with a video camera in my hands. Um, but film became, for me, it was, it, I realized it was uh, a way, it, it was this combination of all these different uh, media that I loved and um, crafts and arts, uh, music, photography, uh, theater, literature, psychology. And, you know, I was a fan of movies, obviously, as uh, growing up. Uh, maybe it's not obvious, but I was. Um, I, in high school, I was a theater geek. I was in all the plays, and uh, I, I acted and everything. It's the only thing that kept me out of trouble. It was, I, was, I did theater and drugs and alcohol. So theater was the good, the good part of that. Um, and in college, I actually worked my way through my undergraduate years as a drummer. I was a drummer in a reggae and ska a series of bands, uh, which is why my short-term memory is still quite impaired, um, even though that was in the early 80s. I was straight by the time I got here. Um, but uh, I fell in love with film and decided that I, I wanted to, uh, instead of just going to LA and fetching coffee for people, I wanted to um, uh, actually get trained. And I came here and got excellent training from some really wonderful teachers. Um, so that's how I first got interested. And that's why I came to UT. And you did your master's here, correct? <laughs> that's right. So I, I came here with a, a, a double major bachelor's for, in political science and communication arts. Mm -hmm. Um, the the poli-sci I'm still very interested in. 
as you can tell, I'm still I'm slightly hungover from watching the debate last night. Um, but <laughs> debate in quotation marks. Um, uh, these days, yes, I, I consider it pro-social content when I try to subtly inject my political views, which of course are pretty far left, uh, being a namby-pamby liberal Hollywood, yeah, all that good stuff. Um, so, uh, uh, yes, I'm sorry, master's degree. Yeah, so maybe you can tell us what kinds of experiences you got uh, interning or uh, <coughs> career experiences, both at UT and soon after graduating. How did you make the jump to LA? How did that go? That's a big question. So, I mean, the best thing that UT did for me was it gave me a safe, cloistered environment to make short films in. Um, and uh, just out of curiosity, by show of hands, how many of you folk are interested in uh, going into screenwriting? Okay, oh, good, so almost half. Uh, what about directing? Okay, great. Producing? Okay. Uh, raise your hands if, I, if you haven't raised your hands yet. Okay. Very good. No, I'm just, just, just curious. So, um, you know, that's the, the best thing about the graduate program was, well, I really needed to learn uh, very basic stuff. I started in film one production and worked my way up. Um, I was, uh, in the second year I was here, I started TAing, and, which is also a great learning experience, and I was the TA for film one for, for two years, four semesters, and then uh, an editing course and an audio production course. And I had great teachers when I was here. I had Horace Newcomb teaching screenwriting, sitting back here uh, inexplicably uh, uh, watching this, um, and a gentleman named Nicholas Caminos, who taught, taught me a lot about production and editing. And Jan Krawitz and some other great folk. Um, and while I was here, so I was, I was TAing, I was also uh, making money to help support myself through graduate school, doing a lot of production jobs. There was a local access channel here, which I cannot remember the name of, that I did a lot of camera work for, covering live music events and a lot of audio sound mixing for as well. Um, okay, so while I was here, um, I was able to make several short films that did very well on the festival circuit. My thesis film was 30 minutes long. It did very well in festivals. And when I went out to Los Angeles, uh, I had this one film in my pocket that, with a bunch of awards attached to it. Um, the first job that I took in LA, so this is, this is a little bit longer answer. You asked me how I broke in, and it's kind of a long, long <laughs> That's answer. okay. Um, on a fluke, three days after I got to LA, I did not know anybody. And I was looking through the trades, the backs of the, the Hollywood Reporter and Variety, and there was an ad for Universal Studio Tour Guides. And I thought, well, that sounds like fun. You know, what the heck? And I used to be very into acting. And I went and tried out for it, and they made it so difficult to get the damn job that it, it just engaged my competitive fervor. And it took two weeks of training and all this weaning down. You have to audition constantly. And I got the job. So my first job was with my master's degree still warm in my pocket for $5.50 an hour as a tour guide for Universal. Did that for two months. While I was there, I met a guy who was a kind of down-on-his-luck producer. He had just spent $100,000 of his own money optioning a Joseph Heller novel. Hadn't sold the script, hadn't gone anywhere. He saw my film. He said, this is really good. Have you showed it to anyone? I said, I don't know anyone. I got here a month ago. And he said, look, call these four agents. Tell them that I saw your movie and they should watch it. I said, great. I got, you know, wrote cover letters, got to these four agents. Um, three of them called me in to uh, ask me to meet with them. And from those three meetings, two of them offered to sign me. So I got my first agent about a month and a half after getting to Los Angeles. And I was so excited. And I thought, somebody's going to give me $20 million to make my first feature. This is amazing. 
I made one huge mistake. I did not have material to go out and pitch. So they, this agent sent me on a round of meetings. Um, and I had all these great meetings with studios and producers and, uh, and uh, not networks at the time. This was uh, really geared towards film. Um, and people would say, wow, this, this student film you did is great. You know, one of the best we've seen. What do you want to do next? And I would say, well, uh, I'm not sure. I want to do smart comedies. You know, what do you have on your roster? So that was, you know, if when you go out with your film in your hand, you need to have material to pitch, okay? Very important. So uh, I very quickly was watching my, my rent money dwindle and um, realized I needed a way to support myself while I was trying to break in in Los Angeles. And I marketed myself as a boom operator. Why a boom operator? Because I had a set of skills. I had done a lot of uh, sound production for my fellow students. I had done audio production when I was in bands in, in Madison, Wisconsin, down here as well for the, uh, the local channel. And um, so I thought I had enough knowledge to, to break into that. And um, uh, that's a whole other story. I, I tell you about the shotgun approach for getting a job, which is writing 100 letters to people and calling them and saying, you know, I'm a new boom operator in town. Can I send you a resume? And um, I actually got three calls for work the week after this. these 100 letters went out. Somebody's boom operator called in sick. Another guy needed a second unit, et cetera. But it is a, a decent way when you're out there trying to get your internship or production assistantship. You know, uh, that's one way to go. Um, I spent three and a half years doing sound work while I was knocking on doors trying to get people to watch my student film. And um, meanwhile, that was very instructive. You know, I hadn't I hadn't planned to go out there and spend three years doing sound, uh, but. I got to watch a lot of directors work. As a boom operator, you're always on set for rehearsals, watching directors uh, work with the actors, learning the, uh, the politics of the set, learning how crews function, uh, learning the rhythms of the set, all of these things. Mostly watching a lot of bad directors work, because I started at a low budget level and kind of gradually worked my way up. And uh, about three and a half years later, I was, uh, I was really kind of burnt out and decided to stay home and just focus on writing. And somehow, well, uh, it makes it sound too easy. I, one of the people I was trying to get my film to was um, uh, the head of production for a gentleman named Roger Corman. Now, do any of you know who Roger Corman is? Was he still alive? Okay, so he was kind of the king of B-movies through the 50s, 60s, into the 70s. He started a lot of great filmmakers. Um, actually, when the people who know you, when I tell people in the industry that I started with Corman, they get very excited and they say, wow, do you know about all the great directors that started with Corman? I said, yes, there's eight of them. Do you know about the other 200 schmucks that never went anywhere? <laughs> but be that as it may, um, uh, uh, this guy who was the head of production for Corman, his partner was the head of development. They were going out and making their own series of films for micro-budgets. Like, and they called me, and they had seen my film. They said, look, we've just done our first film. Uh, do you want to do the second one? You know, the budget is $20,000. We shoot on weekends using Roger's equipment and some of his sets. And I said, yes, of course, I would love to do it. I said, do you have a writer or can I write it? Uh, they said, uh, you can write it. We need a screenplay in eight days. I said, okay. Um, like I said, it was a $20,000 budget. They spent another $25,000 on the sound mix afterwards, um, which is a good use of the money at that, at that level. Um, and they said, I don't want to spend the whole time talking about this, but it's a great Ed Wood story. They said, we have the uh, stock footage of a Cessna airplane flying, and we have uh, the shell of a Cessna. So, write the movie. I said, 
Uh, you want 90 minutes of people sitting in a Cessna? It's very cramped. I said, no, 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 go look at Roger's standing sets. We can use them on the weekends. I said, okay, so I, I looked at that. I wrote them a hostage drama um, that took, he had a nice bar set. So these guys try to break into a nightclub. They, uh, they want to rip off the money, but it's a time lock. They end up taking hostage. It's the whole thing. They, they, called, they read the outline. They said, uh, this is great. Um, we got more stock footage. We have a backpacker doing a high fall off a cliff. We have a car chase, and we have whitewater rafting. Put those in. Go. <laughs> Let me tell you something. Facing a blank page is a lot scarier than having to connect these weird dots. You know, it was an interesting narrative challenge. So if I hadn't had those things, it would have been much harder. I'm not going to tell you the name of this movie because it's freaking awful. However, no, we did it in 12 days. I got paid $500 to write it and $500 to direct it. I wish I had kept the checks and framed them because that was my start. I needed the money at the time to pay rent. They turned around and sold this film uh, for $330,000 six months later at the American film market. And Corman saw it and said, wow, who is this guy? He did a great job for you. Great production values, the story hangs together. And so I got my first Corman film, which was a million and a half dollar film. That film was a comedy called Welcome to Planet Earth with George Went and Shanna Reed. And uh, that one I'm not embarrassed by. You can look at that. I recommend having a beer so before you watch. So is this the mid-90s we're talking about? This is, uh, so 94 was the first movie that I, yeah, and uh, Welcome to Planet Earth was 96. Gotcha. So I actually spent a couple years in the Corman camp. I wrote a lot of screenplays for him that I did not direct. Um, I actually have seven produced screenplays as a writer. I, I did a new Hound of the Baskervilles for him that I was going to shoot in Ireland. And they found out in 1998 that um, uh, they, they didn't have the rights to it until 2000. So they scrapped that. I was very disappointed. I had my plane tickets to Ireland. <laughs> to that. Um, I did a triptych of sh- a trilogy of short stories by Robert Louis Stevenson called The Suicide Club that did get made into a film my first experience with another director screwing up my work as a writer, which was very instructive. Um, I'm very, I try to be very true to the writers when I'm directing. Um, What else? I did a bunch of movies for Roger, and people were saying, you don't want to have too many Corman films on your resume. Uh, That's how I broke in, and I'm making it, I've just compressed that into four minutes, but that was three and a half years before (laughs) I got my first shot at somebody paying me to direct something. So um, that was the beginning. That's great. Uh, so how did you move into directing for television then? That, uh, okay, so good question. So um, I had made this comedy for Corman. Now this whole time, I had an agent. They had not gotten me work, they'd sent me out on this round of meetings. Um, I sent them a commission, because I wanted them to, you know, I probably commissioned them their uh, $100 on my, my $1,000 of the first film. Um, and uh, I was walking in, to their offices with a box of VHS dubs. Anybody know what VHS is? You know, we used to have this, yeah. it's a cute format. Um, and I, I saw this woman in the elevator said, uh, uh, oh, did you work on this? I love this movie. She saw my box and I said, well, I, I directed it, I'm Lev. And she said, oh my God, I said, you're, you're so good with comedy. Have you ever thought about doing television? I said, well, I like to direct, you know, send me on a meeting. She sent me out to a gentleman named Tommy Lynch, who at the time was doing a lot of work for Disney Channel and uh, Nickelodeon. Tommy saw, he watched the first 15 minutes, I later found out, of this film. The film gets very bloody in the end. It's, you know, it's Corman, so there's a lot of violence, but it's violence for comedy. Um, uh, and uh, anyway, I sat down with Tommy. They said, we're going to give Lev an episode. And I, I did the first 
DGA show that I ever did was a show called The Journey of Alan Strange, which is this kind of coming of age, you know, live action, uh, comedy, sci-fi thing with kids. Um, I did one episode for Tommy. He liked my work. I ended up doing 10 episodes of that. I then spent two years doing Nickelodeon and Disney Channel. And, and that was a very big jump up for me directorially. It was the first time I got to work with, with uh, Union Crews. So, you know, in my Corman days, it was a big deal if I could do a 20-foot dolly track move, you know, on a straight line. Uh, working with actual crews, I could do an eight-point dance floor move, you know, and, and the focus pullers could follow. So, so my, the range of expression uh, grew exponentially. Um, the quality of everything jumped up. And I started getting paid a living wage. Uh, I, did, uh, I did 10 shows of that for Tommy, another 12 uh, um, episodes of a thing called Cousin Skeeter, and then uh, I did my first pilot for Tommy, which was a big deal at the time. Yeah, so maybe you can tell us a little bit about what it's like to direct for TV and how you see that, or do you see that as different than directing for a motion picture? Yeah. Um, so the... The big difference between, uh, I would posit it as the difference between directing episodic television or doing pilots and features for television, or pilots and features for anything. It's the difference between doing original work and doing something that already exists. Um, and a lot of the questions that I read really kind of come back to this, this essential difference. Um, my bread and butter has been doing episodic television. I'm getting, oh, I've got a 60-minute sign. I, I, asked, I requested an orchestra. When, when I, if I'm going too long with the, the answers, I'd like to hear music start to play. And I feel like I'm at an award ceremony. I'm sorry. Um, when you're doing episodic television, uh, and I, you said I had done 150 things, which is true, um, about 120 of those are TV episodes, either 30 or 60 minutes in length, um, or they are pilots and features for television. That's the rest of them. So I've done a lot of both. Um, when you're doing episodic television, you're, you're walking into a world that exists to a certain degree. Uh, it depends on where in the season I'm coming in. Uh, when I, I, I've, been, I've done a lot of shows. I just came from Vancouver, where I was the first director after the pilot was shot. So they're still really finding the world. The actors are still finding their characters. The cinematographer is still struggling for how are we going to shoot this? What does this world look like? If you come in on the fourth season of something, like I did on Dawson's Creek a few years back, uh, a lot of years back, or Orange is the New Black, and this was my first episode, was the fourth season. Um, a lot about that world has already been decided. So, um, you know, your range of creative expression is somewhat constricted. You have to, you have to direct within that world. When you're doing pilots and features, you are one of the original filmmakers with varying degrees of autonomy. Um, but you're taking words on a page and inventing the entire world from those. Um, uh, the look, the style, the cinematography, the acting style, uh, uh, the, the locations, everything about it from scratch. And let me back up one second on that. because I, I will tell you, as uh, having come from writing, and I'm still writing, but I haven't written professionally for the last 15, 20 years. Once I started directing full-time, I stopped writing. Then I married a very good writer, and uh, I was like, okay, I'm gonna let her do the writing. Um, the hardest job I've ever attempted is facing a blank page and creating a world from, from nothing. The second hardest job I've done is directing and turning the words on the page into uh, telling a story through moving pictures, okay? And they're very different. One is kind of battling internal demons all the time, which is not my cup of tea. Uh, I'm happier directing, where you're battling everything else 
time, money, pressure, weather. Yeah. Um, but um, yeah, so the, the, the difference really boils down to how much is the world uh, already set when you walk onto the set. Now, when I just came onto, I just did a show for ABC, a new comedy that's not on the air yet, called Imaginary Mary with Jenna Elfman. I think it's a mid-season. It'll be on January. You've heard of it? Oh, you're nodding. Okay. Okay. <laughs> Very funny lady. I liked working with her. Um, so the pilot had been shot. I came on, I did the first episode, and there was, a, there was an imaginary character in it, a, a, an entirely CGI character. So there was a lot of questions about what kind of camera movements we could do and um, you know, how do they interact? The, what are the rules of this character and, and their effect on the world? This character is a figment of Jenna's uh, character's imagination. So there's a lot of questions still being answered. Um, when I went on Everybody Hates Chris, uh, I was the first director on that. And I actually changed the look of that show because the guy who shot the pilot, who's a very talented director named Reginald Hudlin, who did a brilliant job with the actors and made this great comedy that lasted for five years afterwards. The way he shot the pilot was very much in a feature style. It was long lenses, it was static frames, the lighting was really nice. And when they showed me the script for the first episode, I said to the showrunners, as Ali Leroy and Howard Gortz, I said, you know, you guys have all these flash forwards, flashbacks, fantasy sequences. I would just really like to open up the camera style and make it much more dynamic, much wider array of lenses. I really want to think out these transitions and make it a lot more energetic and a lot more fun. And they kind of shrugged and said, well, okay, you know, if we don't like what you're doing, we'll, we'll change it back. And they did like what I did, and that became the look of the show. So you can still have a very big effect on a show. But if I'm doing a feature for Disney Channel or a feature for Disney or a, a pilot, I've now done 11 pilots, five of which have gone to series, um, but in each case, you're inventing the look of it from whole cloth. So it's I don't consider doing pilots and TV features any different than doing a motion picture that's in a theater. The difference is between that and doing episodic. So how much uh, prep time or how much time do you spend on a pilot or an episode uh, before, during, like what is the sort of span of your involvement time-wise? So uh, very different for pilots and uh, for episodes, can you guys hear me okay? Am I talking loud enough? Okay. Um, for episodes, so the one I just did, um, I had five days to prep, and this is a, a kind of typical network comedy. Uh, I have five days of prep, I have five days to shoot, I have two days to edit. Uh, the two days are mandated by the guild. I, I, I get at least two days to edit. Uh, which sometimes I get to I pull three out of them, depending on how far behind they are. Um, you have five days to prep. So in prep, I'm finding locations. I am casting the guest parts. More importantly, I'm figuring out how to shoot the whole show. So, you know, there are some directors that don't do the, this kind of assiduous prep that I do. I really like going in and thinking through the shot blocking, the camera blocking, the actor blocking. I go in with, with very well thought out plans ahead of time. Some directors do that, others don't. Um, when I get on set, I will throw those out about half the time because you're constantly encountered by ideas that are better than the ones that you came up with. But I can't, I'm allergic to walking on a set without knowing what I want to do ahead of time. Uh, the pressure is too much. Uh, you know, um, the thing about television directing, think about really any kind of directing, you're under a lot of pressure. Other people are spending very large sums of money. And um, you need to make 
make something great, particularly in TV, if you're, if you're going to um, do network shows, any kind of shows, they're paying pretty much $100,000 a day to have this crew out there and the actors. And uh, you are expected to bring in uh, what's increasingly a very filmic uh, thing, which I, I always like. I mean, I, I love where TV's gone in the last 20 years. Um, but TV is expected to look like major motion pictures now. Um, so I've always kind of taken that approach. Uh, so, um, sorry, I, I, I Time lost commitment track. for pilots uh, right. versus... For, for a one hour, it's generally seven days of prep, eight days of shooting, and four days of editing. For a pilot, it's very different. I'm waiting to hear, I need you guys to cross your fingers for me because I should hear today I pitched for a pilot last week. This, this is one of the downsides of my career, by the way, is I don't know what I'm doing half the time. I, I booked a very nice trip to Antarctica in December with National Geographic. But if I get this pilot, I'm going to be living in Los Angeles directing a pilot for the next two months. Uh, right now I'm booked to be in Atlanta for the month of November doing a new one hour comedy called Daytime Divas, which I really loved with Vanessa Williams and Tashina Arnolds. And, um, but that may go away too, again, if I get the pilot. So, and I really want to do this pilot. It's very, also a very funny one hour dramedy. Um, and are it, pilots sort of your preferred option if oh you... Oh, yeah. yeah. I love doing pilots. Yeah. So when I'm doing pilots, I'm, I'm really the filmmaker. Uh, mm -hmm. Still in conjunction very much with the writers. We're kind of equal partners. Doing, doing a pilot is usually like a small oligarchy. You have a group of three people, four people maybe. And all of, you know, I function as one of the executive producers because so, you're making all the decisions with casting, with locations, how you're going to shoot it. You're setting the look of the world. Um, so... If I get this pilot, I'll, be, I'll start prepping next week with casting. And I'll be prepping for about six weeks and then shooting for two weeks. Uh, it's a 10-day shoot, I think. Uh, and then editing for about a month, probably. Great. Uh, so how do you research, if it's a show, say, Dawson's Creek, where you come on in the fourth season, or how are you? I was a teenager. I did that research. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, well, how much are you going back and reviewing old episodes, like yeah. catching up, that sort of thing? Yeah, no, that's a great question. So for any show that I go on to, I do a lot of research. I do a lot of homework. Some more fun than others. With Orange is the New Black, I sat down and I watched three seasons. With Arrested Development, I watched every episode leading up to the third season. It was fun. I enjoyed it. Dawson's Creek, I was like, um, just, just send me like your favorite two episodes. That's good. <laughs> uh lovely, extremely talented young cast, but uh, yeah. Um, so I, I, um, I came in the fourth season, I couldn't, I couldn't watch uh, 40 hours of Teenage Angst, I'm sorry. Um, but uh, yeah, so I, I will research the look of the show, the, the style of acting of the characters. You don't want to walk on a set as a director and not know what the characters have been through. So even if I'm not watching every episode, you, I mean, usually I go in very early in a show and I will... Uh, look at whatever cuts they can give me and then read the scripts leading up to where I am. So I know what the characters have been through right up to where I'm picking up with them. Cool. You, you mentioned that when you're doing a pilot, there's sort of a small team of people you work with. And I'm just curious, like, who, who are these people that you tend to work with? And related to that, we hear a lot about showrunner. Showrunner is the guiding force. And how much do you deal with a showrunner on a pilot versus when you're just directing an episode? Uh, sure. So on a pilot, I'm usually working with the writer-producer. The writer almost always has an executive producer credit and the power to go with, as well as another executive produce producer that is usually the person that put the package together, hired the writer, excuse me, got the, uh, got the material sold to a, a studio or a pod or a network or all three. 
And a lot of the pilots that I've done, at least on the network level, it's usually that triumvirate. It's me, the writers, and the producer. So the first pilot I did for network was a show called Do Over. It was Warren Littlefield, the two writers, uh, Kenny and Rick, and myself. Uh, that was the, the, the oligarchy that I'm talking about, the small group. Um, in episodic, and you usually, you form very tight bonds. And you know, if there's, if there are creative differences within that group, you work them out before you, you always present a united front to the, the studio and the network. Um, with uh, episodic, it's very different. I usually try to bond with a showrunner. So on, you know, on Arrested Development, and again, I'm not there to do a Lev Spiro film, I'm there to do a Mitch Hurwitz film, uh, or a Steve Levitan film. Um, I try to kind of push the bounds a little bit in each case. I'll go back and talk about that. But um, there really are, the people that I answer to are the showrunner, Mitch Hurwitz, um, and the line producer as far as budget issues. I, we're kind of more equals, but I need to keep them happy. I need to make sure I'm trying to make my days. If I can't make my days, I have to have a good reason. You know, if I'm gonna go an hour over a certain day, I usually know that ahead of time. Um, and I'll get the permission. Um, and the writer, there's always a writer on the, there's often a writer on the set with me. Um, sometimes that's a junior writer, you know, if I'm in New York or Salt Lake City or Puerto Rico or Vancouver, uh, it's not necessarily the writer that wrote that episode that comes out with you. It's somebody from the writing room. And I always look at them as an ally and they're my conduit to the room if I have questions about tone, if I have questions about uh, specific things that come up. And if the actors are acting up or don't want to do something, I can say, you need to you know, take care of this. Get the, get the, get the uh, showrunner on the phone. Um, so yeah, it's usually the writer. And uh, I always try to kind of make forge a connection with the showrunner, because ultimately, that's the person who's going to answer the questions. Right. Are you engaging at all with the network or studio or any sort of executives? Or are you protected from that mostly? I see them at the table read and tell them how fantastically handsome they are. <laughs> and what brilliant notes they give. My God, you people are brilliant. Hire me for your next three shows. Um, I don't have, I, when I'm doing pilots, I have a lot of interaction with them. Because on a pilot, I'm usually functioning in a, a producer capacity. So I'm on... I'm in the note sessions right up until it's shown at the upfronts in New York in, in, in May. Um, on episodes, it's very different. I will turn in my cut. Once I turn in a director's cut, I'm often really not involved at all until it's on the air, which is, that was tough for me at the beginning of my career because I, you know, I still consider myself a filmmaker. I went to LA to be a filmmaker. I, it's funny, even I see things like this and it said, Lev Spiro, TV director, I'm like, Okay, I, I, in the old days, that was almost not a put down, but um, you know, I call myself a director of film and television, which is true. I'm curious how much or what you've seen change over time, right? Because obviously, when, I'm, when you started, there was cable, but there wasn't a lot of original programming, I'm assuming. There certainly wasn't streaming. How, you know, the status of TV has changed. How do you see things having changed in terms of your role or your navigation of the industry? Uh, it's very interesting. So when I began, 90% of what I did was on network television of some form. I mean, a lot of, when I, when I broke in, it was with the WB, which was a thing at the time. Um, so it was for one of the four networks or WB. 
uh, now most of the work that I do is on cable. And it's interesting, but from a creative standpoint, I find the most interesting stuff is on cable. Uh, my wife and I sat down and we watched a, a network thing. It was done by a friend of ours. And that's why it was very well done, but it's, it's very down the middle. It's hard to, to have the kind of edgy content that we've gotten used to on HBO and Netflix and Showtime and uh, FX and Lifetime, you know, all these other places. Um, so creatively, the material in a very satisfying way is edgier and more adult a lot of the time. Um, about four years ago, I got a call from my agent saying, yeah, the Amazon is doing uh, original series and they're interested in you to do an episode of the show called Betas. And I said, Amazon. And I went to my wife and I said, is this good or is this the end of my career? <laughs> I said, these are the guys that like, will get, get you light bulbs in two days. And she goes, no, no, it's good. Do it. And it was a great show. I, I, it only lasted for one season, but I was really proud of that show. Um, uh, and yeah, so we, we didn't know. I try to roll with these the changes as they come. My job really doesn't change that much. As a director, my job is to take words on a page and make them into moving images that tell a story. That hasn't changed, and that's not going to change in the foreseeable future. Um, I really approach every piece of work that I do as an independent short film. That's 30 or 60 minutes, or really, you know, for network, it's 21 and a half minutes or 42 and a half minutes. One of the things that has changed is that increasingly with a show like Orange is the New Black, um, because they're all released at, at once, um, that to me is a 60-minute film with no interruption. And when I'm designing my shots, I can I, I design them to keep an audience engaged and interrupted, uh, I'm sorry, engaged without being interrupted for 60 minutes. That's very different than a network show where you have 60 minutes interspersed with 20 minutes of commercials and you'll have a cold open, act one, act two, act three, act four, tag. And a lot of the notes you get from network and that I even give will be like, well, we need a stronger act out. You know, it's not funny enough. The audience is not gonna come back after the commercial or we need a, a more tension filled act out. A lot of that's gone away now, which is great for me. I'd, I'd you know, I'm, so, it affects me in terms of how the script is structured when it comes to me. Beyond that, my job has not changed that much. I still, you know, I'm still out there trying to tell compelling stories, funny stories, dramatic stories. Is there a particular show or experience that you are especially fond of or want to talk about? Sure. I'll, I'll talk for the next three hours. <laughs> Ego is a not in short supply in Los Angeles. Uh, so yeah, I told her, yes, I, they should flash the cards just if I'm going on too long here. Um, I think, my, honestly, my favorite experience was the first movie I did for Disney Channel. It was a show called Minutemen, which is a very funny script originally written for an adult audience. Mm -hmm. And the guys hadn't sold it. And so they made it, they took the college characters and made them high school and took a bunch of the language out and sexual situations and made it take place in, in high school. So I really loved this script, and at the time, Disney Channel was very hot, High School Musical had come out, and um, they sent me off to Salt Lake City for four months to, to, to make this movie. I had a producer with me, but uh, he and I became buddies. We rewrote the script together. The first day on set, he watched me direct the morning. I, had, you know, I knew exactly what I wanted, and he said, look, you know what you're doing. I'm gonna be in the trailer writing my next movie. Call me if you need me. So for, for the next two months, I just got to make the comedy 
the way I wanted to. Uh, it was, again, very, for me, no different than doing a film for theaters. It was, that was a great experience because I had the most autonomy on that. I didn't have a writer sitting behind me constantly. Now, don't misunderstand me. That's, that's a powerful ally. You know, I, I like having a writer with me. But in the episodic world, you, you have people with you uh, that are giving you varying degrees of notes. And uh, you know, for all of you writers, by the way, go into television. <laughs> I'm telling you, films may seem sexier to you, but, but writers run television, which is part of the reason I believe this, that we have dozens and dozens of great hours of television every year, not so many great films, in my humble opinion. Uh, in, in the film world, and I've watched this through my, my, my wife's point of view, I should stop and mention, by the way, my wife is a very famous writer. She um, did many, many TV shows. Her name's Melissa Rosenberg. She did four years of Dexter. She was the executive producer of Dexter. She wrote seasons three and four. Um, she wrote a series of indie films called The Twilight Movies, which um, thank you all the ladies in here for watching those, because <laughs> uh, we built a nice house after those five films. And it's true. And um, uh, then she's created the show Jessica Jones on Netflix. So she is a fantastic writer, and I've seen. You know, it's interesting because we see the the industry through each other's eyes. And I plead the I plead the cases of her episodic directors. So she's very respectful and nice to them now. Um, why was I bringing up Melissa? What was I rambling on about, Elisa? Oh dear. <laughs> <laughs> You're lost too. Um, Audience. Fascinating. Going into TV. You asked me what my favorite experiences yes, were, and I was going experience. on. Yeah, Jesus Christ, what a tangent! Um, I know. There you go. I, I really. So that was a great. <laughs> You've show. still thrown me from your Trump experience. That was that was the most <laughs> autonomy I had. Um, but then I get to do great. I've had a very strange career where I go from like family films to, I just did this kind of raunchy R-rated thing called Blue Mountain State: The Rise of Thadland, which I I was the first director on that series as well. It's it's kind of Animal House, maybe not quite as intelligent as Animal House. Um, I actually tried to bring Don't Laugh a Feminist perspective to these proceedings. It would have been much worse if I had not been directing it. I'll just say that. And then, but the, the reason I bring this up is uh, the smartest writing I've gotten to do is stuff like Arrested Development and Weeds and Orange is the New Black and Modern Family. Incredibly sharp writing with incredibly good casts. So that has its own set of, of satisfactions that comes with it. I mean, what amazes me is you've worked in so many different genres and formats. Yes. And I'm just curious, is is the dramedy, is the sort of half-hour dramedy your favorite, or is it sort of the flexibility of trying any sort of thing you don't want to commit? I, I am. No, no, no. I'm, I'm up. I love, part of what I really enjoy about my career is being able to go between different tones. Mm -hmm. And I love going from a, sh a very serious drama like uh, American Dreams, where I had to do these Vietnam battle sequences, or there was a show, a short-lived show called Point Pleasant that was kind of gothic horror. Yeah, yeah. Um, the, 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 challenges of visualizing those, you know, are really fun. Um, I have, uh, I became known for half-hour single-camera comedy and dramedy. So shows like Ugly Betty and The O.C. And, um, you know, what happened was when I first broke into network television, Malcolm in the Middle had just come out and was very popular. So every network was trying to do single-camera comedy. All of a sudden, before then, guys, it was, comedy was really, uh, uh, multi-camera, four cameras, proscenium staging in front of an audience a lot of the time. Um, and the, the networks and studios found themselves in a dilemma. The people that knew how to do single-camera comedy were from the drama side. Uh, sorry, people that knew how to do film-style shooting were from drama. 
The comedy directors were from multi-camera. Those are very different crafts, they're different media. There was a small number of people that they thought could do single camera comedy. So I was one of 30 or 40 directors in LA that started doing all these diff different single camera comedies. It was because I had done Arliss, I think, uh, for HBO in the, the mid 90s. Um, so then I started doing all the shows that were trying to be Malcolm in the Middle. Yeah, a few of them succeeded, but I've gotten to do a bunch of the fun stuff. So yeah, I like doing all these things. Yeah. I will tell you that um, when you're making comedy, you're trying to make the crew and the cast laugh, which is very nice. And it's very uh, different than, uh, you know, if you're on the 13th hour, everyone's exhausted and you're doing a serious dramatic scene. Yeah. It's a very different mood on set. Well, and that kind of leads into my next question is, you know, how are, how are you thinking about the audience or who is the audience you're thinking of? I know that you've made shows for so many different demographic groups and how does that figure into your directing? I, that's a very interesting question. And I realize the answer for me is I try very hard to not think about an audience. Um, I really focus on my craft and what I'm bringing to it. And I, I take each story I try to find my emotional resonance with that story, what it is that I really like about it. Um, I find that if you're driven the other way, particularly in writing, but in directing as well, I, I don't want to make something second-guessing an audience, what they're going to like. I, I, I like to think that I keep getting hired because I bring a, a facility with comedy and also with a certain heartfulness that I try to bring. And it's what I just pitched to this this pilot, we'll see if it works or not. But anytime I get a very funny script, my reaction is, well, how can I emotionally ground these characters so we care about them? And if I get a, you know, a script that's light uh, and very heartful, I'm trying to think of, well, how can I, how can I leaven this or, or a dramatic script? Um, so I, I find that the sweet spot is always somewhere between these two things, comedy and heart. It's one of the reasons Lassie Hallstrom is one of my favorite filmmakers. His last couple of movies, you know, not quite as great as the early stuff, but he always tries to exist in that world between comedy and, and heartfulness. That's great. Um, so I hope I answered your question. No, you, you did. I'm curious, with pilots, are you involved with any um, audience testing? Because I know that they do that a fair amount. Yeah. Uh, yeah so I, the, the, just to recap the answer to your last question, I try not to think about the audiences Right, much. right. They but are obviously different. On you. I, yeah. do, I do think about the tone of the material going in. If I'm doing something for Disney Channel, uh, you know, I, don't, I try not to say fuck as much on the set, especially when I'm talking to 12-year-old actors. It's generally considered rude. Um, generally. And, and inevitably, the parents are standing right behind me anytime I'm, I say something wrong. Um, but, uh, yeah. Uh, I mean, I know you wouldn't want to, but I guess the question is, do you have to? <laughs> do I have to think about the audience? Yeah, because of pilots and testing and that whole process. I have been involved with audience testing in pilots, and it's a very bizarre thing. Um, I couldn't believe it the first time I saw it. I was really, I was, you know, you're in a room, you are sitting behind a glass panel, there's an audience watching the movie, they have dials, and you're watching the computers uh, show you these little bar graphs as the film is going by, and the audience is dialing how much they like certain moments or not. Uh, and you see like a red line for the women and a, a blue line for the men, and um, I got very little out of it. The, the networks take them very seriously. Um, I. <laughs> I found it very bizarre. I've been through that a couple of times. And then they have focus groups. And, and sometimes, you know, 
I, I kind of treated that the same way I tr treat taking notes from people. If I'm writing something, if one person gives me a note, if it's interesting, okay, I'll kind of take that in. If two more people give me the same note, there's probably something to it. So you see if there's repeated notes, you know, people really feel the same way. But part of what I find about the network process, it tends to be a little bit more craven and feckless. Feckless is a great word. Um, they, they don't have the guts to do what, what Netflix and Showtime are doing. It's like everybody is so concerned about their jobs, they want to get rid of whatever might scare somebody or offend somebody, as opposed to committing to a vision, either by the writer or the director or the filmmaker. Um, whereas in Netflix, you know, my wife really fought for what her vision of Jessica Jones was. But it's the difference between network yeah. and cable. Well, and it seems that there's exceptions, because obviously Arrested Development was amazing. Arrested <laughs> Development was amazing, and it lasted for three years, and, they, and then they took it off the air, much to the dismay of a lot of people. Yeah. Uh, so you could make an argument that that show really didn't have a shot at surviving on network. Uh, I don't know. It's an argument better made by some of the gen other gentlemen here in this room. <laughs> well, I'm going to shift for just a few minutes to asking for advice for the students, and then I'll open it up to the audience for some questions. Um, and so you've, you've given some good kernels of information along the way in terms of the length of time it takes to break in and uh, the kinds of experiences you've had and how others might have it. Do you have any just general advice about what students might do to prepare? I, I do. I want to talk about this for a sec because, you know, guys, I, there's a UT in LA. Uh, I think they have three semesters uh, a year now. And I pretty much go and talk to them three times a year. Uh, and here's what I want to say to you guys. There is a way to break in this industry. It's in extremely competitive. Uh, here's, here's the, the bad news is this. Every year, film schools turn out about 48,000 students. Uh, these stats are probably old. A lot of them want to be directors or writers or producers. Um, there's a few hundred guys that do what I do that make a living directing uh, film and television. Maybe I'd say around 1,000. Um, the good news is this. You guys can absolutely break into this. And what I encourage you to do is just get over the fantasy that you're going to be discovered and your talent is going to shine and people are going to see you and throw money at you and you're going to you know, get out there and just make it. That's the fantasy. It's a fantasy I had. It's a fantasy everybody has going to Los Angeles. Everybody I know in the industry, writers, directors, producers, actors, has pretty much done what I've described to you, gone out there and clawed their way up, working in restaurants, working in coffee shops, trying to get their next break. But they're all working. I mean, these are all people, you know, uh, um, this, is, this is how it's done. So that's the first thing. Just make this psychological adjustment. When you go to Los Angeles, and I highly recommend that you do, because that's, especially if you're, if you're going to work in television, you need to live in Los Angeles. Um, there is a case to be made, can I be a screenwriter and still live in Austin? Yeah, it helps if you've made it first, then you can move back to Austin. The money is there, the decision makers are there, the jobs are there, the job meetings are there. Um, so when you move there, just know that your life is going to be bifurcated into two spheres. You're going to be pursuing your career, and you're going to be trying to do something to pay your rent. Okay, And while you're working, and these are all, no, there's no bad job if it keeps you in LA ready to take advantage of opportunities. While you are making cappuccinos for people, um, or being a boom operator on a set, and if you can get a production job, it's better than the restaurant, but it's all good. While you're doing that, you're going to be going, oh, I'm not 
becoming a director. I'm not becoming a writer. I'm not chasing my career goals. And while you're home on the weekends writing or making a short film or taking an acting class, you're going to be looking at your dwindling bank account going, oh, man, i got to pay rent. Okay? Just expect this. All right? Everybody goes through it. Okay, so now I've just given you the first crucial piece of information. This is what everyone does. Don't feel bad. I made a, a, a rule for myself when I got out there. I said, I'm going to give myself five years. I said, you know the motion picture association number you see at the end of a movie? I know you all stay through the credits. And, uh, okay, so at the very end, you'll see the MPAA symbol. You'll see a number. I said, I want to see that number on something I've directed. And if I haven't seen that within five years of getting to L.A., I'm going to give myself another five years. People sometimes don't understand this. The point is, if this is what you want to do, don't set a time limit. It's, it's going to take you some time to break in, okay? By the way, you really have to want to do this because it is a struggle. It's difficult to do, uh, to be a writer, to be a director, to be a producer, to be an actor, anything above the line. To work in the industry below the line, you have a lot more set paths. I had somebody from here call me a couple weeks ago, say, I want to be a cinematographer. I want to break into camera. I said, great. There's, here's a set of steps. Uh, you want to get a camera internship at one of the rental houses and start meeting people. Um, below the line, it's also difficult, but there's, there's a ladder. Above the line, it's, it's a lot more struggle. Okay, so you, you really have to want it. Um, it's what you have to want to do because it's very competitive and you're going to be facing hundreds and thousands of other people, also very bright, also very motivated, that want the same things. But having said that, you guys can do it. The fact that you're sitting here listening to me babble on and on and on endlessly is proof to me that you're motivated enough to go out there and make it, okay? So that's the message I want to give to you. I can talk more about specifics, but that's the important part. And I suspect that'll come from some questions from the audience, too. I guess my question related to the L.A. issue is, do you think it still is the case that going to L.A. is the option? Because you were talking about how you go to Atlanta, you go to Vancouver, you go to Puerto Rico, these sorts of things. And I know that's for well, a production location. Yes. But that's, I've been in those places when I've, after I've gotten jobs by doing meetings in Los Angeles. Uh, I used to do a lot more work in Los Angeles. In the last three years, uh, I, have not, I have not shot anything in Los Angeles. No, one pilot presentation, that was it. Everything else has been North Carolina, Tennessee, Atlanta, Vancouver. Um, so yeah, a lot of, lot of tax breaks uh, that are taking production out of LA. But all the, all the meetings are there. So really, for anything that you want to break into. Now, I know guys that stayed here. Uh, I should back up. I had a very good friend that I went through a program with, came out to LA, and after three years, he says, I can't take it anymore. The people are fake. Um, I, I don't like the culture. I want to go back to Austin. And I, I, I argued with him at first. And I was like, you know, you're giving up on your dream. And he said, Lev, we don't all want to be you know, famous. Some of us just want to be happy. And I was like, Ooh, oh, OK. Oh, sorry, sorry, dude. Okay. <laughs> I can't argue with that. And, and there is, you know, a certain kind of cultural uh, illness in Los Angeles. When you meet people in L.A., there is, it's not like being in a real place like Austin where you meet somebody and you like them or you don't like them and they're interesting or they're not interesting. In Los Angeles, there's always this sense of temperature taking, like, uh, where are you in your career? How high are you up on the hierarchy? What can you do for me? What, what do I have to do for you? It's annoying, it's obnoxious. A lot of my friends that are close friends are still people that I moved out there with and started with and that are from Texas, honestly. Um, there's a lot of good folk out there, but it is part of the culture of the industry. So there's lots to not like about LA. My wife and I have created a really lovely lifestyle for ourselves and we really enjoy living there now. But it's not like living in Austin, okay? 
Um, Austin's in an amazing city, or it was in the late 80s. I assume it still is. Uh, by the way, do you guys know you moved the airport? Because I was like, why are we flying into the Air Force base? This is weird. Yeah. It's been a while. Okay, my final question, which I ask of all our guests, didn't preview this one for you. Okay. Uh, what are you watching these days? What are you enjoying? House of Cards, Game of Thrones. Uh, <laughs> I got my wife to watch Hard Knocks, which is the NFL thing, because we're, I took her to the, the Rams, our first game at home. And um, this, I'm very proud of this, because I really was, I had nothing manly about me. I was a theater geek, and I like art and literature and politics. And I was never into sports, but I really got it. I got into football because I did a football pilot, and I started watching football, and I really got into the Packers. This is like 15 years ago. Um, I got her to watch Hard Knocks, and uh, the other night, I was like, honey, let's watch episode four. She's like, let's do the opposite of Hard Knocks. Let's watch Project Runway tonight. He's like, okay. So, yeah, we have a few. We watch uh, Rachel Maddow, uh, which is, I don't consider a news program, but it is entertaining. Um, <laughs> please don't get your news from, even when they're talking heads on the left side, you know, read the New York Times, uh, read books. Sorry, I won't, I won't, I don't mean to lecture. No, it's welcome. Um, okay, well, with that, I think I'm going to open it up for the audience to ask Great. questions. Sound I'll, good? I'll try to make my answers a little bit more focused. Sorry. Thank you again. Um, why is it that some good, well-crafted pilots with potential don't get picked up and pilots that maybe are iffy sometimes do get picked up by networks? And then have you ever been attached to a pilot that didn't get picked up? Yes. <laughs> I've done 11 pilots, five of them have become series, the other six didn't go anywhere. And, you know, they're all my babies. Once, once I put that much work into a show, I, I think it's brilliant, and of course it should be a series. Um, for various reasons. I mean, I, I did one for Nickelodeon about six years ago, where they came to me, they hired Peter Barsacchini, who wrote all the high school musical movies for Disney Channel. I had done Wizards of Waverly Place, the movie. So Nickelodeon was hiring what they thought was the A-team from Disney Channel and to do a pilot for them. We did a half-hour pilot called Summer Camp. It had a great young cast. I cast Haley Steinfeld in the lead, who was the star of True Grit, who's got like a huge career now. She was unknown when we cast her. Um, and we gave them this beautiful, polished little gem of a half hour. And everybody at the network went apeshit over it. This is fantastic. Worked its way up to the president of Nickelodeon who looked at it and said, well, this looks completely different than everything else we have, which is this kind of bright, poppy, multi-camera stuff. So I don't know how to schedule this. And it's like, yeah, that's what you asked us to. You want it to. Uh. So, um, so that didn't, yeah, didn't go. But it's, it's various reasons. I mean, sometimes it's the people dialing the things and the, the marketing sessions and the executives say, well, they didn't, four and a half minutes in, they didn't like it when the character raised their right eyebrow. So, mm, yeah, so we better. The other thing is, every year the networks will put out millions and millions of dollars. I did Sandy Grusho, who used to run Fox, when he left the network, became an independent producer, and I did two pilots with him. And I asked him this question once, Sandy, how, why, how can you spend $30 million doing eight pilots when they only pick up one of them or two of them. And he said, because one of them becomes modern family and it makes you all your money back. So it's like this very high risks gambling, you know, but um, uh, I, you're asking me to explain the, the machinations of uh, the executive ranks and networks, which is something I try to stay away from. I really enjoy doing my job and taking the words on the page and trying to give them a great film. I'm kind of a, a, a worker in the trenches from that point of view. It's a good question. 
Have you uh, directed any script by your wife, and have you thought about directing a feature by your wife? Um, my wife and I have been together for 24 years. We've been licensed for 21 of those years. And part of the way we keep our marriage alive is by not working together. <laughs> Having said that, we don't do it professionally. We do. She has never put out a pilot or feature script that I have not edited for her, done a pass on. I have never gone to a pitch meeting where I didn't get her story notes ahead of time and take credit for them, because uh, she's very, very good with story, uh, obviously. And um, so we work on each other's stuff constantly behind the scenes. We decided early on that uh, subjecting our marriage to the rigors of a writer-director relationship might not be the best thing. And also, we didn't want to like come home after an 18-hour day and have to talk about you know, what happened on the set. So I will tell you, I will, I will confess one thing, though. The first time I ever told her I wanted to direct something she did was for Jessica Jones, because I love the pilot scripts. I said, honey, I want to do one of these. Marvel approved me. And by the way, the, the drama reel that you saw was cut specifically for Jessica Jones. <laughs> I did that to impress Netflix, and um, that's why there's all these kind of dark-haired women and dramatic situations. All the protagonists are female. I told a story with that. Um, which you may have noticed also involves a lot of uh, uh, sex and violence because it's a way of keeping people hooked. It, it, it's a way of imposing structure on a three-minute montage of images. Um, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not proud, but I'm mercenary. Um, <laughs> but I did work very hard on that montage, and I do think it holds your interest. Um, anyway, Marvel approved me. Netflix said, Lev doesn't have the resume to do a superhero show. Right. Right. It's not a superhero show. That's the brilliance of it. It's a character-driven dramedy that my wife created. So three months after they said, no, you can't do Jessica Jones, they hired me to do Orange is the New Black, character-driven dramedy. It's like, oh, but they didn't have superpowers, so okay. Um, <laughs> go figure. That's the old, that was the first and last time. Even that put a lot of stress on our marriage because I forced her to, to pitch for me, which wasn't healthy. Um, I mean, you just talked about being pigeonholed by genre. Would you say it's possible to go from television directing to theatrical feature film directing? Yes, absolutely. And All evidence to the contrary in my case. I have pitched for a lot of features. I've gotten very agonizingly close on features. And I've done um, projects that were supposed to be features that ended up not being features. This Blue Mountain State movie, the reason I took it on was because we thought it was going to be a theatrical release. Uh, and it ended up being, uh, we, we had a $3 million budget. I gave them what looks like a $15 million film. Uh, but, uh, uh, yeah, that ended up going straight to DVD. So, um, do I think it's possible? Absolutely. 20 years ago when I started doing TV, no, not as much. But now there's a lot of crossover. What happens is I see a lot of feature guys trying to break into network because I actually make a really good living doing what I do. If you are a B or C list film director, and you are now talking very honestly about the, the, um, the finances of this industry and being a director, if you're making a movie once every two or three years, that's a tough way to make a living. You're not getting paid that much. You know, it seems like it may be a six-figure six check, but you're working on something for two years. I, I really, I like cut my salary by a third to do the movies for Disney Channel. Um, by two-thirds, I mean. Uh, so... Uh, directing television is uh, a lot better way to make a living. As a director, the stuff that I get the most satisfaction out of is doing original material. But that's why I've, I've had a foot in both worlds for the last 20 years. But yes, absolutely, it's possible. Um, I kind of have two questions. One would be, do you have any experience or have 
talked to anyone like in the music video type of industry and like is that a vi still a viable career slash experimental type of option to go into as a starting filmmaker? Yeah, I think so. I think um, it's funny you ask that because I'm actually involved in trying to get a music video off the ground with a friend of mine who's a musician who just came out with an album, all this stuff. Trying, he's, he wanted to make a video with his own money. I said, well, how much are you talking about? And he said, uh, $1,000? And I just started, <laughs> I was trying not to, he's from Wales. I was trying not to laugh. It's like, all right, for $3,000, maybe we can get like some free beer to get people in the bar, but okay. Um, yeah, I think that people do make a living doing music video. I don't know a lot about that world. I know that people certainly come out of music video and break into films uh, as a, a career path. Um, so yeah, come out to LA and make music videos. Okay, cool. Why not? I mean, you're still probably going to be... Listen, guys, I've done a lot of time in the restaurant in industry. And again, I'm going to go back to any job that keeps you in Los Angeles where you can knock on doors and take advantage of opportunity is a good job, short of, you know, don't go dancing in clubs and stuff, all right? But uh, anything else, it's honorable. So um, absolutely. I, I mean, the music video, the, the whole music industry has kind of condensed on itself a bit. I'm guessing there's a little bit less opportunity to actually make a good living at it, mm -hmm. but there's still a lot of bands making videos out there. Mm -hmm. Okay, cool. And then the other part would be, is there anything, I know you say pretty much get any job you can when you go out there, is there any sort of like pigeonholing or type like damning type of jobs that like I, I really don't later. I don't think so I, I, I will tell you I was very leery I had been doing sound for a couple of years and uh, um, I was leery of joining the union the guild uh, the, the IA because I thought that would be selling out my dream of directing and my father said well isn't the point to make as much money as you can in as short a time as possible so that you can devote more time to writing and getting your directing career going. I said, yes, I did join the, the guild, and I think, you know, I, I did a movie called Terminal Velocity. I was the cable man on it, and I made like $50,000 in four months doing that. So I, I wouldn't worry about that. You just keep, keep pursuing what it is you really want to do. By the way, my brother said, when I did my first Corman film, he said the tagline on the one sheet should be, from the cable man of Terminal Velocity. So the students in the room over here, what should they be doing to best prepare themselves for going to Los Angeles. You know, there's a lot of courses here, yeah. even more than when you were here. Yeah. So they can take all kinds of things. What should they do to best prepare themselves? Um, thank you. Um, to be a filmmaker, uh, writing and directing, I like to encourage people to get a liberal arts education, to study the humanities, to study literature, to study comparative literature, to study psychology, um, to study the social sciences. Uh, history and political science. Um, so that you're well-rounded as a person, so that when you start writing scripts, when you start directing, you have some breadth of knowledge of the human condition. If all you do is study how Steven Spielberg moved the camera in Jaws and all the films that came afterwards, you're gonna have a great idea of what you're gonna do on a set, but not a lot of knowledge of the human condition that enables you to connect with actors and tell stories effectively. So I, I encourage the liberal arts part. If you're in the RTF program, fantastic, but take other courses, take humanities, okay? Um, there are a couple things that I wish I had done more of when I was here, Paul. One was, and I think the last time I came through town, I was talking to Richard, and I think this has been addressed already. One thing I didn't do was really study working with actors. 
I studied a lot about filmmaking. I studied the history of filmmaking and production techniques. I didn't learn specifically as a director how to direct actors. And it was something that I made up. I studied with a, a lady in Los Angeles named Judith Weston, who's written two fantastic books on the subject called Directing Actors. I think it's the first one, Judith Weston, W-E-S-T-O-N. Um, I would try to take some courses uh, with the drama side, theater department, if you're interested in directing, okay? If you're a writer, you need to write. Write, write, write. Writers write. That's what you do. It's, it's the, the great thing about writing is you can do that. I, it's very hard for me to go out and make films without other people's money and hence their notes. Uh, it's gotten easier these days because uh, uh, the equipment's gotten less expensive. Uh, if you are a director, you need to have a great short film that is a classic American narrative, not experimental, not documentary. If you're, I'm sorry, specifically to break into uh, narrative storytelling um, that shows that you know how to work with actors, that you know how to tell a story with moving images. Um, and it needs to be great and send it out to festivals and try to get some awards. That's your entree. That's your calling card. But as far as uh, studying courses here, so I, I, I do think the liberal arts uh, aspect is very important. Um, as a director, I wish that I had taken more writing courses. I had a couple of great ones, and which enabled me to go and start writing scripts for Roger Corman. Um, uh, I wish I had done more. I wish I had gone out to LA with uh, some great ideas for features in my hand. My career probably would have taken a very different path. Um, it's not completely accidental that I wound up in television because uh, I didn't have those to go out with. Hi, how are you? Uh, thank Wait. you for coming. I'm a big fan of a lot of the shows you worked on. Um, the episode of Orange is the New Black you worked on, uh, you mentioned earlier about the dramedy. Um, that episode in particular is memorable to me because it has a very violent fight scene yes. and it has a very cringeworthy sex scene. So I'm one, uh, the threesome, the threesome. Is, so I have uh, to think about that. Oh, yeah. oh God, that yeah. was cringeworthy. Yeah. So uh, <laughs> I'm wondering if you could uh, talk about um, directing those kinds of action sequences and particularly in maintaining tone uh -huh. because, you know, it, it's so important, I think, in those scenes that you almost don't want to look at the screen, either for comic that purposes is, that or is very, purposes. Thank you for that. That is very much by design. When I read the script, uh, for, I was incredibly lucky to have gotten an episode with Crazy Eye's backstory. And, and uh, she's such an amazing actor uh, to work with. Um, I wanted that fight scene to be very difficult to watch. I didn't anticipate it being as difficult to watch as it is. Um, I like the, 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 the close shots of the woman's face having been bloodied on the floor. I thought the editor would just flash them for you know, 18 frames at a time, which is less than a second, and give the audience an idea. He stayed on them. And I was horrified when I saw the editor's first cut, but it was very effective. And I kept it in my cut, and the producers kept it in their cut. Um, a lot of the violence that I do, particularly in dramedy, is uh, not escapist necessarily. The violence I did for Corman certainly was escapist entertainment. Uh, um, but the violence is, uh, you don't take it quite as seriously. And I wanted people to have a very difficult time watching that, really be invested in those characters and the pain that they're both going through and what she's going through in that moment as the aggressor and what the other woman is going through on the floor. Um, I shot blocked that scene very carefully. Um, it ended up, I threw a lot of the shots away because it was very messy, it was very handheld. Uh, I was, it was rotating in a circle. They were enclosed by a circle of the inmates, some of the brutal guards that were cheering them on. So a lot of the shots, uh, we created the, the, um, the momentum, the energy of the scene in the, in the editing room. Um, the other scene that you're talking about, 
Oh, that was a really tough one because it was three people that were on ecstasy, which I've, I've never done personally, but I, I actually had to do a bunch of research with that. I didn't eat the stuff, but I talked to a lot of people that had. Um, have my own kind of set of experiences to fall back on, but we won't go into that. Um, that was hard because none of those actors had done the drug. And so it was a director that hadn't done it talking to, we had a, shet, a set of non-shared experience to fall back on. So it was a lot of, uh, I had to give some result-oriented direction to kind of get them where I wanted them. But a lot of it was just about the tone, about you know keeping it light to the point where it was fun. Um, yeah, it's, it's, it's not meant to be difficult to watch. Those aren't necessarily three people you want to see take their clothes off and get into it, but that was part of the comedy of, it, of the scene. Uh, I hope I answered your question. Uh, so I have two questions. The first one is when you are on set working with actors, how do you know if a joke or a beat is not working, and how do you know when it is working as someone who directs comedy and, and dramedies? And then the second one, it's about Gilmore Girls. Um, I know the episode that you directed was written by Amy Sherman Palladino. Were, were they both directed? Oh, nice. Um, how was that working with the showrunner who also wrote the episode? What was that experience like? Okay, uh, wh and what was the first part of the question? Sorry. How do I know when a joke is working on set? Yeah. Uh, I think the key to uh, being a comedy director is to grow up in a severely dysfunctional family. I think that gave me a leg up going into the industry. <laughs> I'm not sure how else to explain it. You know, what's funny is the, the film that I made here is a very serious drama uh, that was based on a James Lee Burke short story called The Convict. It was about a white farmer in central Texas in the early 60s who takes a black fugitive onto his farm because he thinks that he's been uh, wrongly uh, treated, dealt with. Um, straight drama, political drama, social drama. And people look at that now and go, how did you wind up doing comedy? I'm like, ah, screwed up family, man. Um, I, there's no committee that tells you when something's working or not. I, if it makes me laugh, I assume that it's working. Um, I have a very broad uh, sense of humor that I, 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 when I'm in pitch meetings, I say, you know, I'm, I'm like a hooker. As far as comedy goes, I like it. I like smart comedy. I like broad comedy. I like absurdist comedy. Uh, I like it all. There's some, I'm not into toilet humor so much, but generally, if I laugh at something, I trust that it's because I have some kind of finger on the pulse of what is actually funny or not. Uh, and as a director, you have to have that much hubris to walk on a set, you know, and you have to pretend you know what you're doing a lot of the time. Um, so, yeah. I mean, sometimes I think something's really funny, but the writer sitting behind me is like, no, I don't think he got it. It's like, okay, I think we did, but how would you like, you know, let's try something different. So you just approach it different ways. Um, the other part of the question was about Gilmore Girls. Um, I loved Amy Sherman Palladino. I love her writing. Working on that show was extremely difficult. I came in in the first year on the ninth episode. Lauren was already exhausted. They had a DP who was a little bit slow. They were doing 14-hour days every day. The whole cast and crew was exhausted. And they had to memorize 65 pages of dialogue because it was so fast. The pages were so dense, it was so rapid fire, such rapid fire delivery. I loved Amy's writing. I loved the fact that it was the first show where I could use one of my favorite bands, XTC. Amy and I are both huge fans, so every show I got to put an XTC cut on. Anybody ever heard of that band? No? All right. Thank you, Robert. Uh, well, you're from the 80s, you don't count, sorry. Um, just kidding. Uh, um, the tough part with Amy was she, I believe that was her first TV sh show that she got the series. 
and she would not release any script until she had done her pass on it. Both of those scripts I got not the night before I started shooting, the morning I started shooting. So we had to prep both those episodes off of outlines, and, which is very hard. And I literally got that script at about five in the morning uh, with a seven o'clock call. And I spent two hours shot blocking the first scene and figuring out how I was gonna shoot it. And then while I was waiting for lighting, for those setups in the first scene, I would do the next scene. And then at lunch, I would catch up the first day. And then that night, I would go do the rest of the week. And the weekend, I would catch up. It was hard. It was really hard. Well, thank you. Um, any last recommendations or pieces of advice you'd like to say as you head out the door? You know, I do. I encourage you, if you want to, to break into this industry, set aside a few thousand dollars for a few months' rent, because you're going to need to like be able to take an internship when you come out there. Uh, come out with a, a few months' rent a car, a hat, and sunglasses. It's very sunny, but it is here too. Um, <laughs> and uh, come to Los Angeles. And uh, I will help you try to break in. Well, thank you very much for your generosity and great input here. It was terrific. Thank you. Okay. Thank you. Yeah. Welcome. Thanks for listening to Media Industry Conversations. This has been a production of the Department of Radio, Television, and Film and the Moody College of Communication at the University of Texas at Austin. For more information and to hear past guests, visit rtf.utexas.edu slash mic. This series was made possible by the work of Dr. Elisa Perrin and Cindy McCreary, with the assistance of Tim Piper and Laura Felshow, and the program was produced and edited by me, Kyle Rather. We hope you join us next time for another Media Industry Conversation. Get along, little doggy, get along.